Exodus of arguably the world's first megachurch pastor, uh, Moses. He wasn't in skinny jeans. He didn't have uh, smoke machines and lights, but he was a megachurch pastor. He had a, upward of a million people in the desert with him that he'd uh, rescued by the Lord's hand out of Egypt. And they find themselves in the desert. They, they met uh, all of their provisions in miraculous ways. They met God on Mount Sinai. They heard the Ten Commandments. And, and now it's Moses' job to pastor them, to shepherd them, to help them with, first of all, the trauma of having met such a holy God in such a, 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 an unmitigated way, almost face-to-face, but, but eyeball-to-cloud is what it was. They, they witnessed the, the Sinai uh, law, the Ten Commandments given to them. They shook with fear. Remember last week, they literally ran away and sent their delegates, their elders, back to Moses to talk to him to say, why don't you go up and talk to God for us, and we'll just listen to what he says secondhand from you. Now, God was happy with this arrangement. It was going to foreshadow the mediation or the, 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 the mediating work that Jesus would do between God and man. We know that there is only one God. And there is only one mediator between man and God, the man, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen. And that was all foreshadowing Jesus. But, but then Moses went up to the mountain into the, the thick darkness of the flame of God's presence. And there he heard the next few chapters. Now, the next few chapters, arguably, are boring. And I'm just saying that so you don't feel bad, because you're going to think it, and I don't want you to feel like, you're some rotten sinner. You are, but we'll, we'll, that's for other reasons. Uh, <coughs> at this section, I get to the commentaries, and I was thinking that we might do the next few chapters maybe in one sermon. And maybe you wanted that. We're going to lock the doors, and we're not going to do that. We're going to go slowly through these chapters. And the reason is because I saw in the commentary, it says, many wise pastors decide that their congregations are not ready for this sort of meaty uh, walkthrough and most pastors can't handle and can't make this sort of content interesting and so it's wise to skip. And I said, well, I don't know whether that's me or not, but I'm not one to turn down a challenge. So I'm not going to be another statistic and just uh, uh, meander our way past this with a passing comment. I'm way too arrogant for that. So we're going to go slow, no, not too slowly, maybe a few sermons, possibly just two, through chapters 21 to the end of chapter 23. This is what is called the book of the covenant. So Moses speaks to the people and then he goes straight back up onto the mountain and God starts revealing his law to him. This is what will be called, as we said, the book of the covenant. Exodus 21 through 23. And it's commandments relating to how the nation of Israel is going to behave and laws that they have to follow in a variety, variety of sort of all-of-life application. This is, not, this is not moral law. In other words, we, we will break down the, the, the three divisions of God's Old Testament law, but this is specific for the Old Testament, specific for the uh, 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 Israelites, and of the, the following chapters of Exodus, if we can break it down, we've now got 19 chapters... From here to the end of the book, 16 of them are just God reciting laws to Moses. Three of them will be some exciting stories. The golden calf will be in there. There's a plague. A few people die. There's a little bit of of building that goes on. But 16 of the following 19 chapters are God speaking out law 
to Moses. That's what we've got ahead of us. So if you're a lawyer, this is your time. You will love it. If you're a, a total nerd and you, you're one of the people who read terms and conditions on things before you hit the box, this is your time. Everybody else, as I said, the deacons will be standing guard at the door. Glue yourself down and remind yourself of what Paul said all of Scripture, all of Scripture is useful and profitable for building us up so that we may be ready for every good work. So look at chapter 21 and verse 1. Today it will be a shorter section because we will be doing some introduction as well. But verse 1 of chapter 21. Now, these are the rules that you should set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years and in the seventh go free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, no, I love my master. I love my wife and my children. I will, go, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the post, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he is the one who has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, today we reach a section that, as we, we said, are going to be, is called in chapter 24, Moses calls it the Book of the Covenant. After the Ten Commandments were read, God then starts giving what we've, we've understood uh, 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 as, as civil commandments and ceremonial commandments. This gives way to the threefold division of the Old Testament law. One of the biggest areas of confusion, one of the most uh, rich uh, areas of legalists to jump on or strange cults to sort of manipulate is basically surrounding this question, how do Christians relate to the Old Testament law? Maybe you've got a weird uncle that doesn't eat shellfish and worships on Friday night to Saturday because he's a real Christian. He loves watching the new moon when he goes out camping and he owns a ram's horn. Maybe you have uh, weird family members and, and they are, uh, again, it's dietary requirements or they put all sorts of Old Testament laws onto you or they, 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 they do all sorts of things that are, that are unbiblical or people just come right out and say, hey, grace, not law. Nothing of the Old Testament is for me. I love Jesus onward. Genesis to Malachi is, is no longer relevant. Lots of confusion comes up at this point. And the main way, the, the, the helpful way, especially enriched through the, through the Reformation time, that Christians have understood, Protestants have understood the Old Testament law, is that it's basically in three sections. It's kind of like a Venn diagram. There's lots of overlap, but mainly we think about them in three distinctions. The first is the moral law of God. And it's called that because it literally defines morality, right and wrong. It's the moral law most clearly articulated in the Ten Commandments. So really easy. If you go to the Old Testament, which parts of us apply to me? 
Definitely the Old Testament. I oh, sorry, definitely the Ten Commandments is what I meant. Anywhere the Ten Commandments are, they are binding on everybody everywhere forever. Now, so, uh, then there are the ceremonial, which is how they were to worship, how are they to build a tabernacle, what the priests had to wear, right down from their hats to their underwear and all of their footwear, everything. And then the civil was, how do they behave as a nation with their justice, with their retribution, with their trade and economy? And that's the three divisions. Now, the civil and the ceremonial are not binding on us because that is not our covenant. You're not an Israelite living in Israel before the coming of the Messiah. So guess what? The law for the Israelites before the coming of the Messiah in the land of Israel doesn't apply to you. Rather, what we can do, and this is why we'll be taking the rest of the book in thematic chunks, is that we can look at the civil and the ceremonial, as the New Testament authors do, through the prism of the Ten Commandments and say, which of these show us a helpful or wise application of the moral law of God that might, that might help me understand what it practically looks like to not kill and honor life or to honor marriage or to honor private property and possession and idolatry, you know, the commandments against idolatry. So there is helpful wisdom in these other portions of Scripture, the ceremonial and civil but they are not in the same manner binding on us. So that when we look at chapters 21 through 23, this is going to be a section of civil law, how Israel had to behave as a nation in their land that God was giving to them. And it gets very practical. God's going to speak to, well, he's already spoken in verse 22 to 26 about the altars, about how, what certain things are prohibited in their, in their thankful offerings, but it gets more specific into civil things. Uh, he talks about laws, about slaves and servants, that'll be today. He talks about unintentional and intentional death, restitutions, fines and payments, moral behavior towards the underprivileged, national laws around Sabbaths and holy days. And also God's promises to them as a nation to drive out their national enemies and give them the land of Canaan. So you can think of the Ten Commandments like a Bill of Rights. And the Book of the Covenant, chapters 21 to 23, is like the rest of the Constitution. Building upon that, applying that to their life, and giving them promises from God. <coughs> now... At this point, we, we, um, uh, let me introduce a couple of thoughts about how we as Christians can, be, can sort of be postured to this before we go in to read it. And the first is that we remember that we are, as we read this, we're not thinking they had this horrible, stringent, external-only law, and we as Christians have a matter of the spirit and internal holiness of the heart. Because that is an oversimplification. As you read these, you'll actually recognize, as we, as we uh, uh, said during our Ten Commandments study, that God is speaking to the Israelites in such a way that he wants their heart. He's actually going to give them laws and commandments about caring for each other and helping out your enemy in such a way that can't really be dragged before a court of law and punished for if you break it. He is commanding heart religion from the very first moments that he has a people. He has established Israel as a nation to himself. He wants their heart. And in the same way, we are demanded, as we read all of this, we are demanded to ask, is my every aspect of life bent into obedience to my King, God, and Redeemer, Jesus Christ? 
we, just like the ancient Israelites, just like those who were cast into exile, we are so apt to think of certain ways that we are, need to have under the law of God, and then basically everything else, the way I treat my employees, my dog, my property, my neighbors, my money, all of these things just aren't spoken to by the law of God, and that's not true. The law of Christ, the rule of Christ, the reign of Christ reaches over every aspect of our life as Christians. Just like the Israelites, hearing this law, which is pretty meticulous, we also need to ask the question, is every portion of my life genuinely bent in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ? And then we can understand how practical, as you read these sections with me, you're going to understand just how practical God's law is. Like it's grounded in real life. The book of the covenant, chapters 21 through 23, deal with things in modern day, we might say, about what to do when you get into debt and you want to avoid begging on the street. What to do when your neighbor borrows your trailer and returns it damaged. What, you get to, uh, what happens when you get into an argument which degenerates into a fist fight. What happens when somebody accidentally injures a woman in a street fight. What, what, you, uh, 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 what happens when your neighbor's dangerous pit bull gets out of the property and bites your child? When your cousin comes to you in debt asking for help, what do you do? These are all the kinds of situations that the book of the law talks about, which are immensely practical. God's law is for real life. And thirdly, what we can learn is as we go through the law, God wants us to be a people, just like he wanted Israel to be a people, who walked in light of their redemption. Over and over again in the New Testament, Paul will use the language of walking worthy of your calling. God has put a call on your life to come out of sin into Christ. God has put a call on our life to stop living in slavery to evil and be rather slaves of righteousness that honor our king, not our former tyrant, the devil. And so also God is speaking to the Israelites saying, just as I have loved you, so love one another. Just as I have done justice for you, do justice for one another. Just as I have rescued you from the tyranny of abusive slavery, you also are prohibited from treating one another in abusive slave-master relationships. And that's where chapter 21 starts. God wants them to live in light of their new identity and in light of their redemption. And their most, most recent identity was abused captors and slaves captives and slaves. And so now God speaks to them about how they can live in freedom, not using their freedom as an excuse for evil. So we, we come to this section about slavery. And I, I ask you, well, I, I'm going to tell you, just suspend all of your idealistic 21st century, extremely privileged assumptions. Suspend all of them. When you come to study history, when you come to study the Bible, when you come to study God's law, which a study of Exodus is all of those things, the Bible, God's law, real history, we have to suspend all of our assumptions as 21st century people. Now, I'm not saying because, because these people were just so primitive, so silly. You know, they were, they were rock apes, you know what I mean? Worshipping silly things created, and God did his best to talk to them, but it's all pretty simple. I know we've evolved, but let's be careful. I'm not saying that. I'm saying God's wiser than you, and I think the Israelites were probably more righteous than our average Western Australian. Can I just say that? I think they're smarter on average. I think they're more experienced because they know how the real world works. 
Now, this is what we mostly have as people come to sections like this in Scripture and get offended and think, this is offending my sensibilities and this is not right and where's the fairness and the equity and the equality? Most of them are coming at it with these assumptions that they have on the back of two millennia of Christian morality. They then assume back into history that everybody thinks like they do and that everybody should be thinking from the privileged position that they do, right? This happens when war breaks out in some other section of the world. I don't know if you can relate to this. When war breaks out in another part of the world, let's say the Middle East, what usually happens is, is Western people, or often the lefty guys, they'll stand up and say, hey, 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 this doesn't need to happen. Why is everybody being so mean? Why don't everybody just meet at the border, do a pinky promise, cease fire, and everything will be okay? And the silliness is that most Westerners assume that everyone else in the world thinks like they do, which is idiocy. They kind of get in this mindset of thinking, hey, everybody wants peace above all costs. Nobody wants innocent civilians to die. Everybody wants the best outcome for the most amount of people. No one wants to ethnically cleanse anywhere else, right? This is the 21st century. And the answer to that is, read a history book and shut your mouth. Most people in the world do not think along the same train tracks of morality than any of us think. It is a completely different world outside of, and I'm going to use this bubble, not in a a derogatory sense, but outside of this blessed bubble that we call the leftover effects of Christendom. It's like these people are standing on the shoulders of giants and 2,000 years of Christian thought and legality and debate and philosophy and ethics and kingdom and Christendom and, and then they just start spitting on everybody else or rather spitting at their own teachers saying the world is just naturally good and if people can make some nice promises we'll all be okay. And the same thing happens when people study history. They come to it and think, why are people doing this? Why aren't people just all getting along and being nice? And you go, that's a tremendous ideal. Ideals are just that. They're ideals. They don't exist. Do you know that about ideals? They don't exist. That's why they're called ideals. Right? People come to me, oh, ideally, pastor, I think church should do this. I'm like, cool. Sweet. That doesn't exist. The ideal church doesn't exist. The the ideal congregant doesn't exist. The ideal pastor doesn't exist. The ideal nation in a world full of sin and tyranny doesn't exist. So God comes into the the Israelite context and starts building for them a nation. And what we often sort of do, we come to this and thinking, you know, everyone has always thought the way I think. Everyone has always prioritized the things I would prioritize. Everybody's always had the opportunities that we have. And everybody has always had the possibilities that we do now. And so we have to remind ourselves, suspend my idealistic 21st century assumptions and privileges when we come to this text. God speaks to his people about slavery and servitude. And some people say, well, it existed. What was God going to do? He had to just limit it. No, he could have eradicated it like he did with 90% of the other stuff they learned from the pagans. God commands this system of slavery. I'm going to go that far, that far this morning. God commanded this system of slavery, and it was genius, and it was good, and most of the slaves loved it. In fact, any of the slaves who lived under God's ordained means of slavery, when their masters obeyed the laws, loved it and preferred it probably 
to your minimum wage, not able to afford rent, living on a 100 square meter uh, property that we do now. Can I just, most peasants live better than most college students today, all right? So before with your one year of philosophy training, you want to stand up and say that, you know, this God is not morally uh, reliable, etc. Let's just, let's read the text. Let's just remember God's wiser than us. History is a lot more complex than we usually give it. And this slavery is the, is the alternative to death. In almost every situation, this kind of slavery, the other opportunity, death. So before you jump up and say, you know, these slaves shouldn't, shouldn't be in slavery, what you're really saying is they should have preferred death. That's, that's called genocide if you want to enforce your, your, your government policy. No slavery. All right, well, they'll go outside and starve. That's, that's the other option. Before we get too critical with slavery, try and go into a desert with a million people Try and get them to get along well enough that they all obey your ideals and you avoid things like debt, abuse, and slavery and people owing each other stuff. See how you go. No one can do it. Let's go back to God's wisdom. So the way that you could become a slave in the Old Testament was you could be a foreigner, an enemy of God, under God's curse, who God has told the Israelites to kill. They were his agent of destruction. And at some point, sometimes God didn't allow it because they were too far gone. Sometimes it was allowed that they would at the moment of death over an enemy, say, would you prefer to live and be my slave forever? Yeah, most people, yes, thank you. Having my head sounds good. So they would be brought back to the Israelite land and live as slaves. Hard life, yes. Better than death, well, your choice. You can have your head removed if you would prefer, but a lot of them chose to rather live in the blessed nation of Israel. The second category, which most of this section talks about, is the reality of indentured servitude. So if you were facing abject poverty, you, you had gotten into some horrible debt, you had stolen something and the fine bankrupted you that you had to return it. Because remember, you steal an ox, you have to pay back five. Here you are, you're in debt. What do you do? You go up to a wealthy person and broker a deal, write a contract and say, I'll work for you six years. Can we agree how much I get paid each year? Or sometimes they would get a lump sum up front that they would then work off, or they would wait and get a lump sum upon their freedom after six years. That's indentured servitude. And in return, they would get living, uh, a living quarters and all of their living expenses paid for. The third way you could be a slave is if your dad was a slave and you were born into slavery. Or you could just be, this, this is not in this section here, but basically day laborers or free employees that would leave their home, come and work for a day, go back home. Sometimes they were called slaves because the same word of servanthood or service is, uh, is in that same word. But anybody who is a slave lived on the property of the owner and answered to the master of the household, which was called the father. So you literally become a part of the, in their language, they called it a household. In our language, we would call it family. You're a part of the family now. You would come in and he would, it would not so much be the language of ownership. It would be the idea of responsibility. You belong, you, you belong to this household now. You're a member of our family. I look after you. And yes, there's lots of work to do, but, you know, real world, there's, there's, there's things to do. <clears throat> now, these laws that th th we're looking at refer to the indentured servitude. People who had contracted themselves to a master for a period of six years for pay. And we see this in verse 2. He says, when you buy a Hebrew slave... This is talking about the, 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 the internal Israelite-to-Israelite Israelite sort of context of how debt payment and servitude and indentured slavery was going to work. <clears throat> this stuff was all about 
the, uh, uh, if you're in poverty or facing debt, God gave you a pathway to walk out of it. So that instead of simply dying or starving or having to sell your kids off into slavery and sex slavery, like much of the world does, God gave them a very possible, very practical pathway to walk out of their poverty that did not involve free handouts. Here's where the 21st century mind comes in. Where was the government? Doesn't Centrelink have an avenue for this, for the, you know, the impoverished who's about to sell themselves? Why didn't the... And sometimes talking to a 21st century person critiquing the Bible is similar to an old comedic show that I watched one time where these New Zealand comedians went to toddlers and asked them how they think the economy worked. And they said, we want to give, you know, because it was a fundraising, we're trying to get money for sick kids. How can we get the money? And the kids said, well, easy. The queen can give them the money. No, that's great. Where does the queen get her money? And this kid goes, from the bank. He goes, all right. Where does the bank get the money? From the prime minister. And where does the prime minister get the money? From the queen, duh. Oh, I, I see. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Why doesn't the government just give the queen money and the queen can tax the people who aren't giving her money? And then the government can just invent money out of somewhere and give it back to the queen and the bank and the queen and the prime minister can all just share this in welcome to the 21st century. And, and so people think, why, why doesn't, you know, the free money system just step in and help people here? Because there's no such thing as free money. This is the real world, and there's not all the privileges, opportunities, and possibilities that we have now available to them. This is the real world. In our world, we still kind of have systems like this. If you're in the military, you're not free. I don't know who told you that you are just because they allowed you to come here this morning. You're not free. You're not allowed to just leave whenever you want. They will literally find you, probably beat you up, and bring you back to the barracks. You owe them something. They're paying you for a certain period of time. Same thing works with mortgages. You are not allowed, as a free person, to decide that you're leaving the country and not going to do anything with the money on your house. They will find you, extradite you, and get the $400,000 out of you, one organ at a time. Or, this, this often works also with internships. If you ever get like a $40,000 student loan, you go and work for a company or a firm, they agree to employ you for five years or so, give you training and experience, and pay off your student loans. Same sort of thing. So it's not entirely alien to the way that we think. We're just trained by reactive 21st century students to think, ah, slavery, God's evil. That's dumb. So this uh, sort of servitude was limited to six years. Uh, we see this in verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. So if he owed you 100 grand and you were paying him 10 grand a year, and at the end he still owes you, 40 grand, mathematicians, 40 grand, guess what? You don't get to demand a lump sum. That's what you agreed to. He goes out free. This, this protected people from abusive tyranny where you just keep on renegotiating the terms and keeping people under your enslavement for decades and even, even generations. God protected them. But more than that, he also protected marriage. Look at verse 3. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. One of the most heartbreaking stories you'll ever read is some of those that come out of, of history at some point where some nation is subjugated and taken others as slaves and husbands and wives are sold to different owners at the slavery block. It's, it's chattel slavery and it's, and it's horrendous. What, what a heartbreaking, destructive situation. But as we said, God's civil laws are application of his moral law. And in the seventh commandment, God commanded the sanctity of marriage. And in his civil law, 
in the economical situation, he still protects it. He says if he, if he comes in single, he, he can go out single. Every single guy knows the pain that magic doesn't make you not single. So that's pretty straightforward. He's single, and then he finishes the job, and he's still single. That's fine. He needs to go find somebody. But if he comes in and he, with a wife, you don't then at the end of the six years say, you can go free, your wife stays with me. I, I was paying for a board. I was giving her plenty of food. Same with your children, actually. They're pretty good workers. They stay with me. There was no room for that abuse and tyranny whatsoever. And then we see in the uh, verse 4 is where people start making noise. Verse 4. If his master gives him a wife, that's, that sounds abusive. You mean if she freely decides to become a wife? Maybe she wanted to be a career woman. You don't know. Whatever. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. Now what we think is he's got this baby factory and he gives wives to all of his male slaves and keeps their children and farms them for energy. And that's not what's going on. Uh, And we think, oh, well, this is an opposite. This is God's breaking up the family for the rights of the slave owner. Also not what is going on. It sounds harsh and it is harsh. Because life's harsh, wake up. It is harsh. It's extremely harsh because it just demands that people do what needs to be done to get by in a real world, right? I, I thought we covered this, this life is harsh business already. To the private school kids, right, who work only for the, for the you know, the, the, the comfort of pocket money and who cry whenever tap water isn't filtered, to us it sounds really harsh. We have no right to determine the standard for what is harsh and fair and good in history. Yes, it's harsh. If you come in and then get married to another slave girl and then your time comes up, you have to leave. You can't take the slave with you. Now you're single again, unless, right? Dot, 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 unless. But it would probably be helpful if sort of painted a picture. So meet Peter, okay? Peter's a 21-year-old guy. And he, uh, he's not from a rich family, but he had some savings. And he went and bought a whole bunch of crop against advice. You don't usually do this, but he emptied his bank account to buy a bunch of seed. He'd bank it on a huge crop this year, and he'd make a five times his, his winnings. A drought came through that year, and he was left with nothing and with no crop, and he was impoverished. So he goes to uh, one of his uh, distant relatives, Nick. And he says, Nick, I'm, I'm poor. I need to make back what I lost. Can I work for you for six years? How much can you afford to give me? And him and Nick broker it out, and they're both Jewish, so they start debating over the cost for a while. And, uh, <laughs> and then they, they come to an agreement. They go, look, Nick, uh, uh, my, Pete, Peter, you're, you're a kinsman, right? You're a family member of mine distantly. I, I grew up with your cousin's father. I'm going to pay you exactly what you lost over six years, and then you can leave free. Peter agrees to it. He, he loves that idea, so he starts in, in, his, in his slavery to Nick. That's what is meant being sold into slavery. He wasn't taken, kidnapped, and sold on a block. He bartered his own negotiation and sold himself into slavery for an agreed-upon price plus living. That was pretty good. He got living with it, all the living expenses. And then... Uh, uh, so in his fifth year, though, he's in fifth year, he's going to get free next year, and Nick, Nick purchases another slave who is a, 
a pretty gal, just a pretty young thing. She's 19. Her father is impoverished, and so she, instead of going into poverty, he allowed his daughter to be negotiated that his, 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 so that her father could buy some donkeys and horses to run the family business. She came over to Nick and started working at Nick's farm. She was a kitchen hand and started doing cooking. And so her family's looked after. She has a job, and she's working alongside Peter. Now, Peter's a little rough around the edges, but he's real cute. And she actually really likes him. And guess what? Peter loves her and her potato stew. And they start talking and, and they start chatting. And, and Nick notices this. And Nick pulls Peter aside. And he goes, have you ever done this before? He goes, I have no clue what I'm doing. Let me tell you. And he takes him for a walk out at sunset. And, and he tells him what gals usually like. And, and Nick's a bit of a poet. So he teaches Peter a few, a few song tricks and sends him home with a, with a song to sing for Petra. And eventually the romance is flying. They're having a few chats around the fire every night. And, and eventually... Nick has the pleasure of overseeing a marriage between two young, young adults living on his property. And the family comes in, and the distant relatives come in, and he hosts them all and gives them a, a cheap wedding, but a blessed wedding, a joyful wedding, a, a lovely wedding of one's youth, as is normalized in the Bible. And, and as uh, this is going on, nine months later, here's little Petey. Peter and Petra have little Petey, and he's, he's a month old, and, and he's wonderful. And, and of course, Petra can't work all of her normal hours, uh, and that's, you know, adding to her debt, actually going to extend out her servitude. But she's got a child. She, she loves this calling on her life, this blessing to be a mother for the child of her love of her life, Peter. And then the next year rolls around, and Peter's a free man. And Peter packs up all of his bags and, and he puts all of his clothes into his little knapsack and he goes to the front door and he says, let's go, Petra, we're going. And Nick meets him at the door and says, Peter, there's a problem. You've lived out your earnings. You've earned back everything that I promised to give you. You're a great worker. But Petra, your wife, still owes me five years plus nine months of maternity leave worth of full-time wages to her father. That's a problem for Peter. Here's his options. Number one, he can leave. He can just run for it and say, sorry, Petra, it was a great gap year fling. I'm going to go somewhere else. And he can leave. Or he can stay with Petra, but scab off Nick, and they can elope together and run away. Now what happens? Nick goes and finds Petra's father and says, I need back all the money that I gave to you because your daughter is not making good. Her family is impoverished, and they end up dying in slavery. Are dying in poverty. Here's the other option. Peter comes to the door of Nick and says, all right, well, how about this? According to verse 4 and 5 here, I'm going to go out and I'm going to work hard to make enough money to cover my wife's debts. I'll buy her off you and then we'll live happily ever after. The problem with that is that no one will pay five plus years of full-time wage to a young inexperienced farm boy so that he could live off his monies as well as pay for his wife. That would then be years. Now, would you want to live away from your wife for six more years to do that? Is that a solution? That's, that's not a solution. Here's the other option. He comes to Nick, and as verse 5 says, he says, I love you, Nick. You've been good to my wife. You've been good to me. This has been a blessing, blessed part of my life. You allowed me to marry Petra. I love you. I love her. I'm not going to do anything apart from you. I'm going to stay here. And look at what verse 5 says. If the slave plainly says, right, non-coerced, he plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. That his master shall bring him to God, that is, to the judges before God. 
give him an ear piercing, show some ownership, and then him and his children are slaves forever until such a time. Now, maybe it's one or two generations, but they can make enough money to then be able to maybe buy their own freedom and, and leave Nick's property. Now, now, you might still say, but that's harsh. Now, him and his children and their children are all going to be slaves because of his decision. Yes, welcome again to the harsh, real world. Because what's the other option that Peter had? Peter could have waited another year until he wasn't a slave and go and pursue a girl who wasn't poor, who wasn't a slave, and who would leave him with no debts. Now, would that have broken his heart? Yes, but return back to page three where we covered the fact that the life is harsh. He made an intentional decision, a short-lived decision, a short-sighted decision to pursue Petra for all she's worth when he wasn't actually going to be able to provide for her. Nick could. God could. God put into the law of God avenues for support for women and children when their husbands were short-sighted, romantic fools. And so here God was going to protect Petra and Petey, protect Nick and Petra's family, protect everybody involved. The only person who has to bear the brunt is the husband, as God designed the world. He was the one who was going to have to bear the brunt. And, and, and what this also did was, and this is part of the wisdom, the more I study this portion of Scripture, the more I see it, God's wisdom in this sort of laws surrounding slavery that Peter, who is quite a fool, because if you're in, in slavery, you were either being paid a fine or you got in debt somehow. Somehow, you're not, 90% of the time, you're not particularly wise. You don't know how to fun, uh, manage money. Well, here's what gets to happen. You get to come into the household, sit around the dinner table, learn from, watch how to manage a family from a patriarch, from a godly man who has the father's heart who knows how to manage money, lands, children, wife, servants, and he gets to show Peter what it looks like to be a man. Now, now some guys know this pain and know this blessing. That is, even in our church, there might be guys who are young, don't come from a Christian family, or are pretty poor, or who, whose jobs are, you know, romantic jobs, and somebody will love the way you play guitar someday, but right now it's not paying all of the family's bills, and... There's a thing called a haircut, and you're not quite familiar with it, but maybe one day. And, and, and you might not have a father or a life trainer or all the opportunities in the world, but at church you find another guy who runs a family well, has a good business, has some wisdom to share, and bit by bit they help, without making you a slave, uh, bit by bit they help sort of build your life back up and give you those, those functional wisdom and know-hows that make a man of God. This is all built into this, that... The slaves were in slavery, literally being trained for how to be free one day. They were in slavery, slavery, literally being trained for how to be men who could manage their life on their own without a single handout. And that's a tremendous thing for a man. It's a tremendous, this is what Abraham Kuyper said when he was Prime Minister of the Netherlands. He refused to solve the problems of poverty at the bottom of society with government handouts. He said this, the type of people who run to line up for free handouts are the kind of people going to go and waste it on stupid things. The kind of men sitting at home who say, I'm not going to take free handouts. I'm a man who works. I'm a good man. I'm a godly man. I'm not taking anybody's free money. That's exactly the kind of guy who needs the help but can't get it with that kind of free handout system. Here's God's wisdom. Men who work hard, families who bind together, who commit themselves in covenant. 
work together. Now, now this last section, verse 7 through 11, here's, here's the two different situations. It starts out, I know, it made some of us uncomfortable. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. It's just dripping with inequality, right? No, life's harsh. Inequality, yes, if you mean not everybody has the same opportunities, sure. But here's the problem. Just like Petra, her father's impoverished and needs something, and her, his, his daughter says, well, why don't I go live on Nick's farm, and Dad, you can get the money for that. Great, because families work together. They see their common responsibility. Now, one of the options, though, was that a, a slave owner like that might allocate a young gal for himself as a bride. Now, there's multiple reasons he might do that. Maybe he is breaking God's command and he is being a polygamist. Now, that was pretty common, tragically, and Jesus comes in and very clearly, on the back of all the other prophets, denounces that. But other situations arise, like maybe he was a widower. That is, his wife had passed away, and he had children to whom his inheritance was already portioned. And here's the problem. If he married another wife on wife status, free lady status... Whatever children she has, she have, start dividing up the inheritance from his firstborn children. That's a problem. Families go to war over that sort of thing. However, if he buys a girl as a servant and then marries her, her children are legitimate children but do not get an inheritance. That might be a unnecessary way that an old man who needs a helper can get a bride, that she can have her, her children, but will, as life is harsh, she'll have to broker up the fact that that means her children miss out on a rich man's inheritance. Or maybe he's childless and he has sold his estate to a cousin who's going to get it upon his death, but he wants a wife. Well, in honesty to his cousin who gets his allotment, again, he'll marry a slave girl so that they can be married and have children and live happily ever after, but they don't get his land. There's all sorts of legal reasons, and God's wise laws cover all of them. But here was the, here was the, the situation. If he was to bring in a gal and he loves her, he could marry her. Easy. If he brought her in, but he's an older guy, he gets a younger gal in the mindset that he's probably going to give her to his son when his son comes of age. The law here is, just because she doesn't get full inheritance if she was your wife, does not mean you're allowed to treat her as anything less than a full-fledged daughter if she marriages, marries your son. That is, that you don't get out of things like bride prices, and you don't get out of things like inheritance just because you're, mar- you're being a cheapo and sell- selling, you know, giving your, your sons the Aldi wives, Right? That's not how it works. She comes into your family. She's a part of your family. It's adoption is what is commanded here. And then the other situation is, okay, now, if you're one of those pieces of work who gets a gal, looks her up and down and goes, no thanks, she's not pretty enough, you're not allowed to then go, I know, I'll sell you to the barbarians. I'll sell you to the Philistines. They'd like a pretty gal like you. She's not your possession. She was your responsibility. So you have to allow her to be purchased back by her father and renege on the contract. Of course, then, if at any point a polygamist uh, doesn't enjoy his wife enough and adds to himself another wife, here's the law, which becomes literally impossible and is technically, for any guy thinking about it with a clear enough head and thinking with this part of his body, if he thinks about it, he will recognize this is impossible to do for more than one wife. It's a little bit funny. He says, you are not allowed to diminish her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. That's, that's the marriage bed. Now, as a young, every young dude grows up going, wish I lived back then so I could have lots of wives. Dude, you cannot manage one, okay? It's going to take you till your 30th anniversary to feel like, 
I, th- I feel like I'm getting a really good handle on just emotional, spiritual, household. I think I'm a responsible enough guy for one wife. It's a lifetime of learning and loving and growing, right? And these guys think, oh, that'd be awesome. No, it's always warfare. Name one polygamous situation in the Old Testament that doesn't end with wives hating each other, cattiness around the dinner. Can you imagine those dinner tables? Wife two, can I have the gravy? Wife three, can you hand him the gravy, please? My wife, wife one sitting up here is having all of her food. So can you imagine the Christmases? I know they didn't do Christmas, but the Hanukkahs or whatever they did back then around those dinners, horrible. And so, so God's saying, if you had a wife, you know what you're not allowed to do? Give her any less food money, spending money, Gucci money. You're not allowed to give her any less food. Still take her out to the nice Italian pork-free restaurants. Still give her all of the jewelry that you gave her first and have marital intimacy just as much as you ever had before. Now, any guy should look at that and go, I feel like God made me so that it's impossible to faithfully have two wives. You think? Any guy that read the, 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 the account of Adam and Eve should have come to that conclusion. But here's God's wisdom and that he's protecting the ladies. That if their husband says, you know, good for me, you're a piece of work, you're a piece of trash, go on home to your father or, or, or stay here. I'm not going to be the kind of guy that has a divorce, how degrading to me. God says, you don't get that decision. You have to live with the bad effects of your bad decisions. You keep her and look after her as a real wife that you love or you let her go back to her father with a lump sum and send her on her way set up for life. Again, God's law is more intelligent, wise, and beneficial than we ever think, and it is amazingly helpful and edifying, good, genuinely, positively good for the Israelites in this part of the world. What it does do, right... We read these portions of the law, and we'll see it as we keep on going. What it does not do is tickle our sensibilities and make us happy to just quote and post on Facebook any portion of Scripture. I know we're not always as comfortable to do that with it. God's law doesn't aim to make us comfortable. What it does do is it sets up, it sets up realism over idealism. That is, God deals with the world in the way it actually is, not the way you wish it worked. There are piece of, piece of work husbands out there. There are abusive people ready to take and abuse children. There are people who are ready to steal you and rob you blind, given the moment's chance. God's law steps in and sets up some boundaries. God's law does emphasize responsibility over wants. Right? At no point was the young slave girl asked what she would prefer to do with her career. Or the young man asked, would he prefer to leave Nick completely in debt and run off with a pretty young lady? We thought so, Peter. Have fun. At no point did they ask that. They are held to their responsibilities instead. Duty over dreams. Communal identity over individualism. Family obligations well and above over personal goals. And if those things make you uncomfortable, we have repenting to do so that we can get in the mindset of how God has established and created human beings to work. Here's some of the themes. See if these sound familiar. Some of the themes that have come so far through the the law of God. A tyrannical master can be escaped so that an an abused person can find a home of peace and flourishing. Slaves can be liberated and redeemed at their cost. Former slaves can choose to serve their master out of love. Husbands taking responsibility for his bride and establishing a life for her. 
A man willingly undergoing slavery in order to be with his bride. A father allocating a woman as a bride for his dearly beloved son. An abused person, uh, sorry, an abusive situation being escaped so that you can be in a marriage of love and protection. Does it start sounding like the themes of the gospel? God put into his law themes and echoes of his own heart and then put his own heart on full display, full brightness in the gospel. Because in the gospel, God is a father who finds an impoverished lady being treated horribly by her first boyfriend, takes her, cleans her, and presents her as a bride to his son. In the gospel, Jesus Christ, God's son, comes into slavery and lives a horrible experience in order to pay off the debt of his future wife. In the gospel, God comes down and finds us being abused under the slavery of the devil and our sin, and sheds his own blood in order to liberate us and bring us to a home and a family and a kingdom that cannot be shaken and that lasts forever and that is a blessing to everybody that is in it. In the gospel, Jesus Christ pays for us. Galatians 4 verse 4 tells us this, when the fullness of time had come, when the years of God's calendar had run out, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Father has sent his Son. Jesus has willingly come. And in dying on the cross, it was the perfect man dying for you and me. The man who who was what we could never imagine being, infinitely better than us, infinitely more holy, infinitely more loving, infinitely more moral, never having done anything evil, gave his life, as a ransom for our souls. And because of his own resurrection, he's resurrected like a bridegroom. And he stands welcoming everybody that he purchased, everybody that are released from slavery and that he died to atone for. He then says, come to my wedding ceremony. I will clothe you. I'll bring you to my father's home. You'll be provided for. You will be given adoption as sons. Come one, come all. Anybody guilty, anybody sinful, come to the Lord Jesus Christ and he will set you free from slavery to sin and death. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your law. How difficult that is for modern sensibilities to even utter. Your law is wonderful. Your law is perfect. We are the faulty ones. We're the ones who get, who get uncomfortable and offended by your word. Father God, forgive us. May you give us hearts that love you. Give us hearts that love your law. Give us souls and hearts and eyes and ears that hear your law and see your wisdom, see your beauty and see your provision. Father God, we, we thank you for what ways the, this, this very uh, ancient law might somehow find application in our life. Holy Spirit, would you be here to, to do what I didn't have the time to do? Apply this law into each of our situations, our, our, our fiancé relationship, our dating relationship, our working relationship, our employer's working dealings, whatever it may be, Lord God. Would you make us a people who are family-oriented, who have a duty towards the community, who, who, who regard duty as, as higher than our dreams and who want to glorify you and serve you more than our own selves. Father God, we know that our hearts cannot do this unless they are born again, remade and renewed by, the, by, the, by the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So please do that in our midst. Make us a born again people, ready and excited and zealous for good works. 
Father God, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.